Plenty from a busy day on the radio for you for the next hour. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Iwaracht is old. It's probably now lost. And it means the loneliness that you feel at dawn um, when you just sort of feel like you're the only one that's sort of there and experiencing this. You know, those sort of hours when you're lying awake and everything seems so much bigger than it actually is. This jury has taken back for all of us something we've been hemorrhaging over the last decades, which is core decency and humanity. It might be ours historically, but really they've, they've take, made it their own, the Americans, uh, over the years. Uh, the National Retail Federation in the US is predicting that $10.6 billion will be spent around Halloween. Within that, $700 million is going to be spent on pet costumes. Oh, don't. And we'll start in the morning where Ryan Tuberty was having flashbacks and things got a bit weird. Quick one for parents, uh, uh, not just parents, but anyone of my generation who at one stage had to suffer through the uh, the horror that was Barney the Dinosaur. And it, it, it I love you, you know, you love me. I'll, I'll keep this short. We're a happy family with a great big hug and a kiss from me to you. No. Me too. So Barney, there's a documentary about Barney the dinosaur, and I didn't realize I was reading this piece. In November 1997, Barney the dinosaur was stabbed to death by the New York City Police Department. Did you hear what happened? So no, and I was reading, going, "Oh no, Barney died a violent death. Watch Barney get destroyed. Uh, cruel Thanksgiving parade, Barney." So I was reading it through. It was a vast inflatable version of Barney, right? <laughs> he was. He was at the Macy's Thanksgiving uh, parade and then the winds threw Barney towards the onlooking crowds and in an instant the character became less I love you, you love me Barney a more lurid Godzilla threatening to crush and suffocate hordes of young children and then a different kind of disaster struck a powerful gust (laughs) shoved Barney into a lamppost ripping him open as he flailed his wound flapping horribly, the NYPD moved in with knives to bring the 58-foot dino down, swarming on Barney's back like ants. The police did what they do best. They murdered him in public. <laughs> so poor old Barney. As there are children listening in this morning in the back of the car, I say to their parents, good luck with that and you're welcome. Uh, but that's what it is. Uh, from the mid-90s onwards, Barney he found himself at the centre of a hate campaign and this article suggests it comes from things like Fight Club and the Woodstock 99 uh, where there was this kind of macho thing going on in the air and a lot of anger was centred on Barney and the, this series a documentary series two part which I'm already dying to see is called I Love You You Hate Me <laughs> which is a great title and it gets under Barney's foam suit to chart the show's rise and spat, backlash really against the man, the dinosaur himself. And two facts you mightn't know. One is that the man who who was the physical incarnation of Barney inside the suit for a decade uh, is a tantric energy healer and sex therapist. Uh, Red flag. And secondly, it's believed that (laughs) the Pentagon used Barney music as a torture device. Remember that? I think we spoke about that here. Forcing prisoners to listen to that song I just forced you to listen to for 24 hours straight. So that's what that is. Okay, this is getting weird. Yep, it was. That's Ryan Tuberty in the morning. 
And on Today with Claire Byrne, Alex Jones ordered to pay nearly $1 billion to families of the victims of Sandy Hook. Conspiracy theorist and InfoWars host Alex Jones made a false claim that the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012, in which 26 children and six adults died, was a hoax. He said that the children did not die and their grieving parents were actors used in an elaborate plot to take away people's guns. He pursued his theory to such an extent that his followers harassed the families, turned up at their doors demanding to see the children and some of those families were forced to move home to protect themselves. One parent, Mark Barden, testified that conspiracy theorists urinated on the grave of his seven-year-old son, Daniel, and threatened to dig up the coffin. In the judgment delivered yesterday, Alex Jones was fined a total of $965 million. Let's listen to a section of that verdict being read out. Verdict. We, the jury, have reached our verdict as to damages in this case. We award damages to each plaintiff and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems LLC as follows. To plaintiff Robbie Parker, A, defamation slash slander damages past and future, $60 million. B, emotional distress damages past and future, $60 million. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Robert Parker and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B, total $120 million. Initial by juror number one. To plaintiff David Wheeler, A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $25 million. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $30 million. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff David Wheeler and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B, $55 million uh, initial by juror number one. Well, Alex Jones had appeared before the court in Connecticut and he had admitted to being wrong about Sandy Hook, but that's all. He said it was a kangaroo court and that the plaintiff's lawyers were ambulance chasers and that his right to free speech was under attack. And even while that verdict was being delivered, he was broadcasting and looking for more money. Ain't going to be happening. Ain't no money. Now remember, I'm in bankruptcy. We got two years of appeals. The money you donate does not go to these people. It goes to fight this fraud, and it goes to stabilize the company. They want to shut down. That's why the the, the ambulance chasers did this, why they use these families. So SaveInfoWars.com. We're fighting Goliath. We'll win because of you. SaveInfoWars.com. InfoWarsStore.com. Double Patriot points, 10% off at 1776 right now at InfoWarsStore. But you see, you want somebody to fight for you? I'm doing it, and you see what they do. Well, outside the court, lawyer for the families, Josh Koskoff, whom we've spoken to several times on this show, said this for the families. This jury has taken back for all of us something we've been hemorrhaging over the last decades, which is core decency and humanity. The failure to be able to hear each other or listen to each other and the gullibility of believing that people are bad people or good people. This is an incredibly restorative moment, I think. Then Claire spoke to Kieran O'Connor, senior analyst with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, and Terry Sheridan, news director of WSHU Radio. Terry, first to you, this is a, a staggering verdict simply because of the financial sums involved. But what has the reaction been where you are in the United States? 
Well, my station is based in Connecticut. We cover New York as well. But among the Connecticut residents, most Connecticut residents, there is a sense of joy over this because residents know, especially those who live in, in Sandy Hook and the Newtown area, what a living hell it's been for the past 10 years because of what they feel is an invasion of people coming in trying to prove that the shooting never happened. People coming in uh, openly wearing firearms because they think that this was all staged, that the families were actors, the children never existed, and it was all a plot to take away their guns. It's hard for us looking at a distance to understand the influence of Infowars. This is the vehicle that Alex Jones used. But a very striking statistic that has emerged is the fact that one in 10 Americans trust him, Alex Jones. One in five believed his conspiracy theories about Sandy Hook. I know that is absolutely to me. I I, I covered the story uh, in part. To me, it's absolutely unbelievable. Uh, but the thing is, at least my opinion is, is the repeated. He was preaching to the choir, and just the repeated mentioning that this didn't happen, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, had an effect on those who wanted to believe that the government were were trying to take away guns. You know, we heard him there broadcasting as that verdict was being read out, saying that they will never get their money. What is the thinking on whether they will ever be paid, the families? I mean, will they just be, will we see Alex Jones tied up in bankruptcy and legal argument and cases for years now? Well, according to the latest figures, he's worth about $250 million. Uh, Infowars or the parent company takes in in certain years $50 million. He doesn't have a billion dollars to give. But the thing is, if he's found to that he's trying to hide any assets, uh, he's now liable for criminal prosecution. And also, this doesn't go away. This is going to follow him uh, financially for the rest of his life because money that he makes is going to go to the families. Are they going to get a million, a billion dollars? Probably not. But this is something that's going to basically destroy the career and bankrupt Alex Jones. Kieran O'Connor, I want to bring you in now from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue. What do you make of the verdict? I think it's good news. I think that Alex Jones is someone who's built a career on conspiracies and hatred online and really he's kind of created the for so many in, in the U.S., but also further appeal, including Ireland, who have tried to make a career out of, you know, false and misleading information. Uh, and, and finding Alex Jones guilty of, of damages is, is important, of course, but it's also less important maybe than, than dismantling the business model that allows people like him to profit by producing dangerous claims that are either false or misleading and pumping these into the national uh, discourse. So hopefully this is a step towards accomplishing well, that. Well, uh, yes, and that dismantling certainly hasn't happened yet because it is extraordinary to hear him continuing on as the verdict is read out yesterday. This hasn't stopped him. No, in the face of the verdict, he doubles down. He mocks the victim's families and then he tried to convince his audience to, to send him money. And I think uh, part of the previous trial uh, a few months ago showed that uh, when he was deplatformed, when he was banned off the platforms like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and these kinds of places, he actually recorded a rise uh, in, in, in revenue and in donations to his website. So this is something that Alex Jones will try to uh, peddle, will try to react and use this and, and put forward that, that victimhood mentality that he is 
last bastion you know, of free speech and all these kinds of ludicrous claims when, in fact, no, Alex Jones is someone who was, you know, he was an early promoter of the QAnon conspiracy movement in the U.S. He describes 9-11 as an inside job. He, he described the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing as staged by the FBI. He's someone who has uh, made a career off christening and conspiracy theories on How significant is it, Kieran, that the judgment is not just against Alex Jones personally, but also against his company? I think it's very significant. I think as Terry uh, touched upon there, this is something that will um, that will that will follow Alex Jones around and targeting of the of the company as well uh, is, is important because it's, it's on that platform on which uh, Alex Jones has kind of created his his business model, has created his whole persona, and in not just targeting him but targeting his company, simply taking off the. Um, you're not just taking off the head of the snake, you're going for the whole body. And Claire asked Terry about the harassment of the victims' families. This campaign waged by Alex Jones, it ruined lives, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there was one family member who committed suicide because of the pressure that uh, he was getting from outside people coming in. The families were not, I mean, again, they were grieving one of the most horrible acts in American history uh, for their personal for their personal loss. And then they were harassed and they were harassed for years in despicable ways. So the families, it, as one of them, and I forget which parent testified, it's something that they have to live with every day because it's being pushed into their face every day by people accusing them of lying, of not existing or or being um, or somehow being complicit with the government, being actors. And Terry, coming back then to how this will impact other campaigns, similar campaigns that are waged online, is this likely, to, do you feel, to have any real impact on that from here? Uh, the short answer is no. Um, this could be the beginning to impact. Um, uh, are you talking about people like Alex Jones continuing? Yes, yeah, similar uh, campaigns. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I I think no, it's not going to stop it now, but I think it's the first step in in holding people responsible who spread these sort of lies. Yes, everyone talks about free speech, but the miscon the misconception here in the United States is that the government can't prevent you from saying anything, but. There could be consequences later, whether they're criminal, whether they're civil in this case, or or any other consequence. But there could there are consequences for free speech. So I think people are going to try to push that line. Terry Sheridan from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty was talking to the brilliant Susie Dent, best known for her residency in Dictionary Corner on the quiz Countdown. Susie loves words, so this was Ryan's opening question. Have you done Wordle today yet, or is that... Uh... I haven't. That's a treat for later. And do you treat yourself to such a thing? I do. It's just a tiny little oasis, isn't it? In the, in, well, for me, in the middle of the den. A lot of people do it when they wake up. Um, but it's just that, for me, it's just a little bit of, um, of mindfulness, I suppose, mm. uh, which I don't practice enough. I wish I could see it as mindfulness. I find it quite frustrating. When I can't, <laughs> do you know when you, you know, and you get the Yeah, I've ceased, ceased being competitive about it. That's, I just, I think I lost my stats overnight for some reason. And I thought, OK, it doesn't really matter then. Um, <laughs> so that was probably quite a good thing. Not a bad thing. And final question on that is, do you have a go-to word to begin with or are you constant or vowel heavy? Um, 
I I've tried my my dad always uses Adia like a lot of people, oh. which is quite useful. Um, my go-to has usually been Share, um, but then when if if that has no hits at all, I'll go with Point, uh, and that will usually get me somewhere. But obviously, it kind of then precludes you getting it in two, which is. To be fair, just a bit a bit of luck, isn't it, if you it, get it in two? And, but it is an air-punching moment for, for a nerd. Oh, I've never got it in one, have you? No, never no. got it in one. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of thing that breaks your heart. But, but a two is good enough for me. For me, a two is probably a one. Uh, totally with you, yeah. I'm going to go, go for total luck. I'd love to try and get a, uh, the handle on you as a, as a youngster and, and getting books into your hand and words into your head um, and realising... Oh, you know, while other kids were playing hockey or running or swimming, <laughs> you were going, no, 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 get me into that book. Can you talk to me about young Susie and where that all came from and what happened? Yeah, I actually, I did like hockey, so okay, it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't all bad. But um, but no, I, I do remember very distinctly um, sitting in the school assembly when they were handing out, um, you know, sports prizes or they were sort of nominating people to be head of teams and things. And I so desperately wanted to be one of those. But then they called me up and I was chief librarian, which at the time, <laughs> It was really mortifying. I know. And actually looking back, it was the best thing ever because I spent every lunchtime just surrounded by the things that I loved. But it was not the cool job title. And certainly what I what I did and the way I approached things then was not cool at all. I was a geek and a, and a nerd long before they became fashionable. But, um, yeah, I just would find the warmest... Um, warmest place in the house because my dad didn't like having the heating on <laughs> and I would just sit try and find a splash of sunshine and just sit and, and read vocabulary books which I know sounds very strange but I love them it was the it was the words rather than the stories so is that what happened like the vocabulary and the etymology yeah. of it where they all came from well, etymology came for me a little bit later. Okay. And actually, my first loves were French and German. So English also, my love of, of English came a little bit later too. So it was French and German vocabulary books. And for me, you know, Ryan, they did spin a tale as well. I think I just, you know, because obviously they'd be sort of thematic. And I think I would then just get lost in the sounds of these things. I can't quite explain why, mm. but uh, I was just so so drawn to them and even now if there's a pot of mustard or a bottle of ketchup on the table I have to read the ingredients list and uh, they are so boring I realise but I'm just sort of somehow compelled it's a very very weird thing what, what, I am very strange No you're not strange at all you're in very among very good company here <laughs> this morning Susie <laughs> you're among your own so oh, good. speak freely it's a very safe space today um, <laughs> tell me about what you what you read in the back of a you know mayonnaise label is, is it are you look, literally looking for for words that, that excite and cause curiosity for you or is it just because you want to read more? Uh, probably the latter, yeah. I don't get particularly excited about the ingredients of um, of ketchup and I think I know them off by heart by now. But um, no, it's just it's just that sort of, I, I don't, that attraction to the, to the written word particularly. Yes. And I remember um, when I was studying languages at university, I went on this experimental sort of immersion course whereby um, you went into a room and you heard nothing but Russian uh, for uh, for two hours yes. and nothing was written down. Obviously, it would have been in Cyrillic anyway, but nothing was written down. You just had to pick it up. And I found it really hard. I realised how much I am reliant on the written word and that's just the way my brain works. So, um, so yeah, I think that's what's pulling me in, strangely. But you're, you're fluent in German and French and English, obviously. Um, is that right? Yeah, well, um, definitely with German. I feel like my French definitely needs some work. I haven't spoken it enough recently. But yes, I, I hope that I would get by. And did you ever study Latin? I did. I did a crash course in Latin because I to. wanted... 
I wanted to study it um, at an American university because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do after mm. after graduating. And they um, insisted if you were going to do anything language based that you had Latin. So yeah. I, I did yeah crash course. And I'm so glad I did because, as you know, it allows you to decode so many English words then. Oh, I think Latin makes um, Alan Turing's of us all. Uh, well, true. You know, very because, true. Because the, the when you break the word, suddenly a, a three or four or five syllable word becomes like a very, very enjoyable and exciting puzzle. It is totally like a puzzle that you can just um, unpack, and yeah. you can do that actually if you know French as well, because so many Latin words obviously came yeah. to us from the Normans after 1066, and and so if you know your French as well, that's a really good way in. And Ryan asked Susie about her latest book, an emotional dictionary. Now let me talk about the emotional dictionary because. I, I, it is a it is a book for our of its time, shall we say? Um, because people have been so used to talking about their emotions in a way they they haven't or wouldn't have certainly in this country. I'm sure it's not far off in the UK. Um, mm. Wouldn't be known for their emotional outpouring, shall we say? Um, to, to talk to me a little bit about the genesis of the book. Well, it was started just before lockdown, but I really got into it during lockdown when, as you say, I mean, I think just we all felt so many complex emotions. And uh, I just thought this would be a good time to write down the words that I have found in the course of my career that express emotions. And then I realised I also had to tackle the biggies like, you know, lust and greed and envy and look at their history too, Mm. which was quite tricky because I'm not a philosopher at all. And obviously there's so much um, philosophy uh, bound in there, but I just looked at them very much from a kind of linguistic point of view and um, and and loved it. And I call it an emotional dictionary because it's very much my sort of take on things, my my sort of selection. But um, you know, I just I remember discovering once in the in the sort of depths of lockdown, which was lonesome fret, um, which is kind of languishing in the corners of the dictionary, and it just means restless from too much solitude, um, yeah. essentially, and being too much cut off from people and. Just just listening to Freddie there singing about, you know, on my own and being lonely and lonely actually started off as alone. It's a, it's a spin off, obviously, from alone and alone was all one. Mm. And so, in other words, you are just one person just there on your own. So, um, yeah, me- many, many words for melancholy in the dictionary. And um, I made a big effort to try and find some positive ones there, too. Of course, we'll go. I want to go through some of them. But as you're speaking, I think one of the most powerful words that I, I only realised the impact of it was nostalgia. Uh, yeah. Isn't that wasn't that sort of a, like a sickness for soldiers in the war? Yeah, absolutely. So um, that was another um, eye-opener for me. I hadn't realised that actually our interpretations of emotions and, in fact, the body languages that express them have changed over time. So, for example, um, yawning, if you were in Shakespeare's time, would have been a sign of either excitement or astonishment. Wow. Um, I know, which is strange. And um, sometimes if you um, if you sneezed, you were thought to be sort of expelling demons from your body. But, yeah, nostalgia was... was incredible really because it began um, four or five hundred years ago now as mal du Suisse the Swiss illness and it was observed among Swiss soldiers uh, and they had fevers they had vomiting some of them were said to even die from this malady and it was thought to be due to um, brain damage caused by cowbell clanging during their childhood which is quite extraordinary Um, but it was that it was expressed also emotionally through being in tears um, feeling heartbroken and um, you know there were great efforts made to keep them away from any sound of cowbells lest it kind of make them incredibly sick again and then much later this Swiss illness 
was was reformulated uh, as nostalgia, which of course we use so lightly now, don't we? It's a bit of a throwaway for a kind of eighties nostalgia yeah. night or whatever. Yeah. But it was once really serious business. Kind of like an intense homesickness or uh, yeah, yearning for for times past. Oh, and there's so much yearning in the mm. dictionary. I have to say, one of my favourites is um, is Welsh actually, and it's hiraith, which is the longing, longing for home. But it's so much more than that. It can be a home that you don't actually, you, you're not quite sure where it is. It's the longing to sort of belong, um, which is just beautiful. And and uh, that, that that one definitely had to go in. Ah, so interesting. We'll come back to Susie Dent's an emotional dictionary a bit later in the program. And on the live line in the afternoon, continuing the conversation and shining a light on the silent suffering of endometriosis. This is Fiona's email to Joe. Good afternoon, Joe. In relation to the topic of endometriosis, I've been suffering with incredibly painful, heavy, irregular periods since I was 14. Several visits to my doctor regarding this, and the only answer was to go on a contraceptive. I didn't go to discos, summer camps or any other activity in my teens because my period ruled how I lived my life. In hindsight, I existed and didn't live my teen years. As time went on, I began mentioning it to my friends as they would have recalled school days where I had to go home or change out of my uniform into my PE gear due to being only what I can describe as destroyed by the surprise arrival of my period. I met my now husband in our early 20s. Neither of us had any interest in having children, so I began the conversation about having a hysterectomy with my doctor, as I saw what the surgery had done for a woman I worked with at the time. She was so unwell, no energy, struggled with the most menial of tasks. After the surgery, she now had life in her years. She had much more energy. She's incredibly fit, healthy, and now relishes her activity holidays throughout the world. She fought for seven years and she had her kids and was in her 40s. I, however, was 27 and I was told I was too young and I will change my mind and I will have regrets and I will want children, all of which I knew I will not want or regret. At 32, my husband had a vasectomy. Not once was he questioned or told that he'll regret the decision. In fact, four couples in our close group of friends, each man has had a vasectomy. Only one couple has children. The rest of us have decided children are not for us. I'm now 36. I'm not on a contraceptive. I've sought alternative therapies with holistic therapists to help ease my periods, as medically there is nobody willing to listen to our plight of suffering. I have offered to complete a disclaimer in case a medical professional is afraid of redress. I've pleaded through tears and in pain to please listen to me, to actually hear me and not just listening, but to respond, which is all that is happening with years. How is this allowed to happen in this day and age? It's nothing short of inhumane. Surely as responsible adults, we can decide what we want ourselves for our own bodies. Well, that's Fiona's email. Then Joe spoke to 47-year-old Emma. I wouldn't normally talk about this, but last week I had COVID uh, and I was at home all week and I was listening okay. to your show and I was struck by the stories, programme after programme after programme and on Friday evening I just couldn't settle at all. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided, since you're always so good giving us a voice and giving us time when there are troubles relating to the women of Ireland, I thought I'd write to you um, 
And yeah, I think I said in my email that it ruled my life for a long time. Um, I, as I say, I don't particularly like talking about it, but I think since you've given us the platform, yes, it is a, a nightmare uh, for women who have it and in various ways. And I think um, that I have heard as much as I could of your show, but I was working the last couple of days and I missed some of the stories. But again and again and again, one of the things I think that comes up is the problem relating to diagnosis. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that diagnosis is impossible without invasive surgery is makes the whole thing really, really difficult. Also, the fact that diagnosis takes an average 10 years um, by which time it's entrenched in many patients is another problem. And then uh, there is no cure. So the treatment, as you've heard from all the women who've rung you over the last uh, few days, it's either menopause, false or real, or it's pregnancy, um, or it's maybe hysterectomy, which doesn't always work. And pregnancy is often prevented by the lesions anyway. So there is no cure. And I think doctors don't want to get this wrong. Uh, but they don't seem to, there's no way around it. It's one of the most awkward illnesses knocking around, you know. And then, of course, yeah. doctors' visits are a problem. I always found with me, I'd be pacing the floor for three nights in a row. I'd be dying inside and work. And um, But by the time you get a doctor's appointment, you're probably okay. So the doctor doesn't yeah. see you when you're in the horrors, you know. Um, and um, there was one night when I went to South Dock because I was in such a bad way. And that doctor saw me in the horrors and he said, go straight into the hospital. But I was... I was not thinking straight and I didn't go and I should have gone that night. Um, Yeah, I'm very lucky. I'm better now, but I'm better having had a hysterectomy and having had something like five different surgeries and um, I'm better. uh, I am better. I am. But uh, those years, those years are, as loads of the girls have said to you over the last few days, they're very, it's, you're, you're on your own. It's very lonely. It's silent. And I mean, the pain of it, I suppose, it's a little bit like puking, you know, you kind of need to be on your own when you're puking. And my husband is always great. He knew that I kind of had to be on my own when I was dying. And, um, you know, you'd be pacing, 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 pacing up and down. That would, that would be all you could do. There's no such thing as lying in bed, really. It's just pacing, pacing, pacing. And, um, you're all by yourself and it's the dead of night a lot of the time and you just feel like you're in the wilderness and you're on your own. Um, and when, my doctors did how, their best, but... How long, yeah. Sorry, how long did it take before you were diagnosed with endo? Uh, well, I suppose I don't really know because um, I got my monthly since I was 14, but, hmm. you know, I was born back in the 70s and we didn't think about, we didn't talk about those things, you know. I wouldn't have talked to the girls in school, my friends. My mother would have definitely talked to me okay. had I told her, but it, I didn't think to tell her. Okay. So I would have been suffering, but I wouldn't have really known that it wasn't normal. I thought it was normal to be suffering, but I didn't pay too much attention to it. But I started getting very bad when I was about, maybe about 24, 25, and I did tell my doctor about it at the time. So, but she didn't really, she wasn't really sure. Eventually, she sent me um, to, a, to a gynecologist in 2006. So I would have been maybe 25. So I'd have been, I'd have been bad enough with monthlies from when I was 14. Mm. But I don't know whether, I, I, I have no idea when I had it. But I know that I was getting worse, let's say, in my early 20s. So that consultant then, he was suspicious straight away. After five minutes, he said, I need to do a laparoscopy. And I won't, I won't tell you why until I've done it. And he did it. And then he came in and he told me that I had endometriosis. And it was such a big, long word. I had no idea what it meant, you know. Um, but unfortunately, as, as you know, I was saying about the cure, they've all been saying it. There's no cure, so they just manage it with hormones, maybe. So he put me on the pill and he said, take it back to back and this should stop the bleeding and, and then stop the, you know, your monthly so you don't have the pain. And, and that was all well and good. And some girls can tolerate that. But And one of your callers the other day, I heard her saying that she, the same thing happened to her. Instead of not bleeding at all because you're taking the pill continuously, I bled every day. 
for six months and a little bit, not a, not a huge amount. It was just a constant mm. small amount of bleeding. And um, so I had a check up with him after six months and uh, he said um, to keep, that this was working and to keep going because I wasn't having any more pain. But um, I said, look, the bleeding is, is very inconvenient and unpleasant and strange and tiring and exhausting. And um, But it was the word but he didn't like. And he said, no, look, look, I'm the doctor, you're the patient to keep taking it. So I was naive and, uh, at the time and I, I wasn't thinking straight. And I just obeyed him for another year and a half. So I bled solidly for two years. And um, I'm tough, you know, so I didn't really suffer from anemia or I didn't feel like I was suffering from anemia. And by the time I went back to him, because I was beside myself, I couldn't cope anymore. Um, He was gone and had discharged his patients, but I hadn't got a letter to the effect. So I went to my GP and he immediately took me off the pill. But then, of course, after about six months, the pain started coming back. So um, and then it just uh, it escalated and I didn't really know what was going on. And it was just, you know, but when something creeps up in you, you know, it creeps and it creeps and creeps and it creeps. And the pain is a bit worse and a bit worse and a bit worse all the time. It's so gradual that you don't fully realise that it's not normal. So I was thinking it was normal to be up three, four nights in a row pacing the floors. I thought that was normal, period pain. It was ridiculous to think that, but I did. That's Emma on the live line with Joe Duffy. Uh, Halloween mostly had to do with black bin bags and a few bits of fruits and nuts. But these days, it's big business, as Adam Maguire was telling Claire Byrne in the morning. You know, without wanting to get to, you know, back in my day, uh, when I was of trick-or-treating age, which was only a couple of years ago. Back in your ago, day. Yeah, only yeah. a few years ago. It was it was a fairly basic event. Like, you'd have your homemade costume, you know, something like a, a bin bag with a skeleton painted on it. it the, the closest you'd have to your <laughs> shop bought would be the, you know, the plastic the mask, molded mask. With the elastic the on the back. band that would snap and take your eye out. Uh, you'd, you'd take your shopping bag and you go around to a few neighbours, get a few sweets and fruit and all the rest. And there, there might be bonfires and fireworks in the day, but that was kind of it, really. And I think that was the case until relatively recently. But over the past decade or so, it seems to have developed into this major point in, in the events calendar. And it's it's obviously nowhere near the scale of Christmas, but it's kind of like Christmas in that it's now weeks long rather than just one day. Uh, and I think really we have the Americans to, to thank or, or to blame for this because they've been doing Halloween a lot bigger for a much longer time than, than we have. And, and, you know, if you think about the Halloween TV shows, even 20, 30 years ago, or the, the, the specials, the Halloween specials mm-hmm. of a TV show, it would be such a big event on those. So we have this kind of interesting dynamic where Irish emigrants brought Halloween to the Americans. They embraced it. They turned it up to 11 as they tend to do. And, and we've, sent it we, back. We've imported it back off them and, and we're trying to make it our own but again. There's, there's no doubt about it. It has been become a point of stress and there's a couple of those in the year for parents. Clearly there's Christmas and then you might panic coming up to St. Patrick's Day because you don't have any green costumes. But now Halloween, you know, unless you've been in there in September and snaffled up a costume or two, you're in trouble. Yeah, and what you'll find is as well that the stuff, especially decorations and things, they disappear as you get close to because they've moved, the shops have moved on to Christmas already. Christmas. So you have to be prepared. You might have to have your Halloween costume. You might have to have a costume for going into school. You might, have, you know, so it can actually be multiple costumes and decorations. And Even now, now, when I was in the supermarket last night, I was just, you know, assaulted by the tins of sweets when I went in. It's Christmas in the supermarket. Yeah, it is. It's kind of a weird mixture. Halloween kind of holds it back a little bit, but not so much anymore yeah. that, you know, we, we, you know, this Halloween stuff and then suddenly you switch over to Christmas mode. Let's talk about the moolah. Yeah. How, mu- how much money are we talking about here? Well, if we stick to the, the Americans, because they say, you know, it might be ours historically, but really they've they've take, made it their own, the Americans, uh, over the years. Uh, the National Retail Federation in the US is predicting that 10.6 billion dollars will be spent around Halloween this year. That's half a billion more than was spent last year and it's more than double what was spent in the country in 20- 2007. So huge increase in, in 15 years. Mm. 
had money. Of that, um, apparently, uh, a part of the reason for the big spend this year is because it's a Monday. So they think there's going to be lots of things going on over the weekend leading up to Halloween and then Halloween itself on the Monday. And of that $10.6 billion, uh, 2.9 is predicted to go towards costumes alone. Within that, $700 million is going to be spent on pet costumes. Oh, don't. So really? yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. And, and apparently 68% of American consumers are going to participate this, this year. So in a country that's very divided on a lot of things, it seems to be one event that, that everybody or most people in the country seem to get behind. $700 million on pet costumes. That is worth <laughs> repeating. <laughs> so what are we spending here? So yeah. have you had a look here at, uh, in Ireland at the money side? A, a little bit harder to find figures on Irish spending, but there have been surveys conducted over the years. Uh, nothing since the start of the pandemic. So the most recent one is a survey by iReach in 2019. It's expected 49 million euros being spent by Irish consumers that year, uh, which is actually down on, on the previous survey in 2017. It was around 65 million that year. Um, so we're talking about about 10 euro per head in Ireland compared to about 30 euro per head in America. So a much smaller scale, but more people here get involved. About three quarters of people uh, do something around Halloween, according to that survey. And I suppose every year we expand what it means to do Halloween. You know, you can see that going down any street where there's more and more houses decked out and Halloween decorations and, you know, uh, more and more people getting involved in that way. But I know someone has a, a Halloween tree, which is kind oh, of like a Christmas, Christmas tree. tree but no, I don't agree with those. With, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, I but, mean, not to be too bad humbug about this. When you see someone who's really put the effort into decorating outside their house for Halloween, it's lovely and children is, take yeah. great and, pleasure and, you know, from it. Whatever you're into yourself, yeah. you know. But I think really, you know, with you the can, tree, you I'm can, not, I'm not going there. <laughs> but you can see by the figures that I think we do Halloween, but we don't go whole hog in it. You know, that, that iReach survey found that of people who were going to dress up, 21% were making their own costumes, 17% were buying them in a discount shop, 13% were going to use an old one. So that's more than half of people were finding a way to get a costume without going out and splashing mm-hmm. big money on it compared to Americans who are spending 2.9 billion on, on costumes and 700 on that. Yeah, but you, you can see, you know, how, what, how it's changed over the years because most supermarkets now have a devoted aisle at you know at some point in September October to Halloween. Yeah, and I, I mean my local supermarket is the first thing you see. You have to walk by this massive Christmas aisle or, or sorry Halloween aisle before you get to the the normal stuff. And not to mention all the pop up Halloween shops as well that tend to you know coming to supermarkets at this time of year that are purely dedicated on Halloween uh, fair uh, so it is a major sales event for retailers and it's reflected in some of the sales figures um, Kantar the consultancy firm told me nearly 47.5 million euro worth of cons- confectionery sales in supermarkets in the four weeks leading up to Halloween last year some of that now would just be your normal you know people buying sweets but it is definitely boosted by Halloween for example in 2020 when trick-or-treating wasn't happening they said sales of multi-pack sweets fell by 40% so they're the kind of thing people buy a couple of bags of have there for kids knocking on the door and here's and then eat them yourself and and then you have to replace them because you bought them too early (laughs) the one thing that really amazed me though in the month leading up to Halloween last year our supermarket sold more than 1.9 million euro worth of pumpkins Uh, that's all new now as well that is relatively new it is new to me Uh, it's jumped dramatically as well half a million more than was spent in 2019 so a massive jump Tesco told me this year they're expecting to sell somewhere in the region of 200,000 pumpkins and they say there's demand for all shapes and sizes including these American style girds the green and white coloured ones and all the rest Super Value said last year they sold 92,000 pumpkins and that was up 17% year on year so between those two retailers you're looking at about 300,000 uh, pumpkins being sold uh, and while we are saying it's it's different to what it used to be 10-20 years ago some of the old habits are still there uh, Tesco says they're seeing strong demand for monkey nuts and barn brack Super Value said their Halloween nuts uh, rose in sales by 11% last year and apparently Tesco are going to sell 20,000 glow sticks this year as well which I presume is for people's costumes okay. and decorations. Adam Maguire from Today with Claire Byrne.
Now, 15 years ago, Marquetta Irglova made a movie and music and picked up an Oscar for her work on the Irish film Once. She was talking to Catherine Thomas in the afternoon. Oh, well, listen, it's great to have you back and welcome back. Thank you. Uh, when was the last time you were here? I was here in May, actually, not so long ago. Okay. I was travelling to south of France and I, and I went through Ireland because it's always nice to catch up with friends and, and such. So I, I tried to grab every opportunity, actually, to come back. So does it feel like a home away from home when you're here? I mean, how, how long were you living in Ireland? Well, I, I guess I wasn't living, living here for that long. It was just three years. But, you know, I, I've been sort of I was coming and going since mm. I since I'd been like 15. You know, so I, I sort of felt like I grew up with Ireland. And, yeah. And um, and yes, it was a home to me for three years. And it has been a home to me ever since, really, you know, because people always treat me like I'm one of you guys, you know, and that's really special. Well, we kind of do believe that you are like we feel, <laughs> we feel that and when I say you haven't changed, like I haven't met you before. But even listening to you singing that song, you know, and and, uh, and watching you perform it, um, it sort of it, it does. It takes you back to, to that you. amazing, uh, the the amazing movie that you did with Glenn. Um, so you say you've been living in Iceland for over a decade now. Yeah. Um, so how did you end up from going from Ireland to Iceland? I actually went to, to New York first okay. and, and when I was living there I decided to um, record an album and I chose a studio in Iceland uh, which was recommended to me by a friend. It was one of those sort of, um, you know, series of, of sort of, I don't know, unplanned things that led me there and then... Serendipity. Uh, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the man who was engineering... Uh, the recording session, um, I've, I've just fell in love with him and I stay there. The, and same, there. the, the age old story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else could keep you in Iceland? I mean, it's beautiful, <laughs> but it's bloody cold. And, you know, you feel a bit isolated from the rest of the world at times, especially with my family being far away. And, you know, I sort of I really did kind of have to start from scratch just building a community of, of people and, and friends. And most of my friends are actually parents of my my children's friends. OK. <laughs> no, it's one of those things, you know, you end up socialising so little when you have little children that most of the people you meet are people from school and stuff. So but, what age are your kids? Uh, well, my youngest one is four and then okay. I have a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. Wow, OK. That's amazing. So three three babas all living in Iceland. So Iceland is home for you now. Oh then. yeah, oh yeah. I even have a Icelandic citizenship now. Okay. But n- not that I really feel Icelandic in any way, you know. It's just I mean, they made me work for it too. <laughs> if I'm being honest. But uh, yeah, 10 years is a long time to be in a place and my children are half, half Icelandic, you know. So sure. it's just it's just part of my story for sure. So you're Czech. Your husband is Icelandic. Um, You obviously write and perform in English. So what what what's the language at home? Like, how do you what's the 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 makeup at home? Well, we speak all three languages, being Icelandic, Czech and English. And uh, the kids watch all cartoons and stuff in English, you know, on Disney and, you know, Apple uh, TV. So, So they've learned English from TV and which is really handy because we have people all the time like come from other countries and stay with us or work in in our studio. And they're just able to chat with them and, and they're very social. So I'm sort of happy they're picking up all three. They're, they resist the Czech the most for <laughs> for obvious reasons. It's very hard language and it's very difficult to pronounce, you know, if if, if your first language is Icelandic. It's it's totally different, but yeah. I, I'm sort of yeah I'm making an effort to, to I read, teach them. I read as well that your dog is a bit of a linguist. 
Yeah, yes. <laughs> Even the dog is, is is exposed to all three languages. And she's a border collie and they're super smart. Um, so I've noticed that it doesn't matter what language I say walk in. You know, she she completely perks up with it and, and knows what's going on. So I thought that, that was is pretty brilliant. cool. Yeah. That is brilliant. Um, so come here, we were saying once it's 15 years old, um, it must be a very special memory for you. I mean, I often when when people have been to the Academy Awards, I ask them, like, do you watch it every year? You know, all the announcements, the big build up happens in January. Um, so to have that um, accolade and to have that achievement, um, do you still watch the Oscars and do you still watch the Academy Awards and uh, and smile with pride? And yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely and say to a your tradition. kids, I was there, that was me. Yeah, well unfortunately I never watch it with the kids because it's on so late because of the time difference. So I sort of make myself stay up until like four in the morning or something to watch it. But it's definitely a tra- tradition for me and my husband. We sort of take the Oscar statue down from the studio where where it usually is, down to our living room and we put it in front of us on the coffee table and sort of have it there for the duration of the <laughs> show and we just get such a kick out of it. Still. Amazing. And obviously you still are in touch with Glenn and uh, yeah. Do you guys still do work together? Do you still make music together? Yes, we did some shows together in the States in March and uh, we totally want to do more because we both loved it and we've been talking about going to the studio even and recording some some songs together. It's like, you know, whenever we're together chatting or playing music, it's like no time has passed and, you know, our friendship is very strong so I'm very grateful for that. Marketa Erglova talking to Catherine Thomas in the afternoon. And back to Ryan Tuberty's chat with Susie Dent about her new book, An Emotional Dictionary. And Ryan asked Susie about that tendency we have to put a name to nuanced feelings. And I know I've definitely felt agiatory in the past. What I loved about your book, and it's it's a book I wish I had got for Christmas. Does that make sense? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd love to be sitting down with my chocolates and movies in the background in front of a fire oh. for a week with it, you know. And, oh, thank and, you. No, I really I mean that. it's a good one for the loo as well. Well, indeed. But but <laughs> but I'd be kind of raise my head and go, did you know? Um, you know, and, and everyone go, yes, we do know. We've got But the point I'm making is that with your book, there are all these extraordinary words and it reminded me that we'd love to have, don't we love to have a label or a name for something? You know, mm. it, it, I don't know why it helps, but you got to go, oh, so that's what that is. Yeah. And uh, again, this is an, another thing that I learned that there is such a thing as um, emotional granularity, which is a fairly sort of posh term for, as you say, being able to name things, being able to name your emotions and thereby somehow having some control over them. So um, words in this sense have real power. If you are able to articulate exactly what you are feeling, then obviously you're going to get um, feedback and hopefully help and support from other people. You might get confelicity, which is shared happiness. Um, So actually being able to put a name to things and being able to articulate them, particularly emotionally, is really, really important. So um, that was another lovely impetus for the book actually is just sort of saying oh there is a word for staring longingly at someone else's food or um, uh, you know feeling worse after a bad haircut or um, looking at yourself in the mirror and just being completely repelled um, to (laughs) sort of much more fundamental things like you know melancholy and and panic and that sort of thing that's right it dances through the the range of emotions in any given day is it is it called agiotori or 
Argeotori. Argeotori. Yes, the Japanese. Yes. Um, and that, uh, I think we've all felt it, no matter how much we love yes. our hairdresser. I think we've all looked in the mirror and they're sort of happily brandishing the mirror and showing you the back of your hair thinking, do you like it? And you just say, yes, it's lovely. Uh, even when you're dying a bit inside. So the Japanese do have a term for, yes, exiting the hairdresser looking far worse than when you went in. How would you put that into a sentence, Susie? Oh, I should just sort of say, I don't know, I had such a flash of Argeotori yesterday. And um, I mean, I am perfectly aware of the fact that these aren't going to slip necessarily into everyday No, I appreciate that, but it, it, it's very sad. <laughs> no, there's something very satisfying. Uh, there's another word which uh, a philosopher got in touch with us once. I always quote the, 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 the I suppose, the sentiment, which was the, the, this person wrote into us here to say that they didn't know what to get their child for Christmas because the mm. child just wanted, wrote a letter to Santa Claus to say, all I want to know is the secret to happiness. And Aww. yeah, I know. And the philosopher wrote in and said, well, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you give a gift to somebody. Yes. And you know how happy that person looks. Yes. And you know how happy in that instant you feel. Yes. yes. That's happiness. And this brings us to the word confelicity, which I love. Never heard yes. of. Yes. Talk to me about no. confelicity. I think. Oh, it's just so beautiful. And you know what? It hasn't actually even made it into standard historical dictionaries. It's just been sort of floating around and, and sort of uncaptured. And I would just love uh, to share this a bit. So, um, yes, confelicity, exactly as you say, it's that, you know, joy in someone else's happiness. So being filled with happiness on uh, in a completely uninv- uh, sort of, I suppose you're invested, but not in a selfish way. Um, and it is just that radiated joy that bounces off you as well and it is I, I think in the book I sort of say it's the near opposite of um, you know the famous Schadenfreude from Germany yes. which is joy in someone else's misfortune um, this is is joy in in yes someone else's joy and that that's just such a lovely thing I mean there are there's another one in the book which is um, a well-wooder and it's a, as opposed to a well-wisher somebody who wishes you well yeah. unconditionally a well-wooder is somebody who wishes you good luck as long as it's not more luck than they have. Uh, <laughs> and I was delighted I like to find that. a word for that. Yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> confelicity, I mean, the opposite to what we'd probably call it here is uh, begrudgery. Mm, um, yes. Yes, ways. exactly. Begrudgement. Um, do you know, I was I went for a walk with a friend the other day mm-hmm. and she, um, she talked about um, looking back with uh, chagrin or chagrin at yes. something and I just stopped and I thought, I haven't got that in. And I know I'm just going to go through the next yes, 12 you months are. thinking ah, why did I leave that out that's, so um, yeah that's always the pitfall it's not at all it, it, there's a positive in this that's why you you, you, you now reprint the emotional and emotional dictionary <laughs> as volume one and then worry about okay. volume two and even more interesting words and their origins Scaramouche Scaramouche can you do the Fandango I mean Scaramouche oh. we listened to Freddie this morning so let's talk about that yeah, back back to uh, back to Queen exactly, and I think that was that was certainly my introduction to Scaramouche um, from Bohemian uh, Rhapsody. But it comes from uh, a, a sort of stock figure in Italian comedy called the Commedia dell'arte, and um, that gave us pantaloon, it gave us harlequin, uh, it gave us quite a few words in in English, zany as well, because zany uh, was named after a slightly eccentric character oh. called Gianni, Gianni, um, short for John, I think, in Italian, who was another character on that stage. Anyway, uh, Scaramuccia was, uh, as I say, a stock figure. He was a kind of servant who was forever getting into tricky situations, but he'd always get himself out. And I think it's Italian for skirmish. 
Mm. Um, so, um, but when Queen are talking about it, I think possibly some people think they're talking about the hemp fandango, and um, fandango obviously a Spanish dance, and that could be um, a rather dark euphemism for for being hanged. Well, I'll never hear the song again the same way. But um, no, the the, uh, the Germans. We mentioned your German, um, and you've got some words in it. Torschlusspanik. Um, oh, forgive yes, the pronunciation. Right. I don't do German at all. But this is a. But I love the definition of it. <laughs> yeah, this is the the German way of expressing a midlife crisis, really. So mm-hmm. it means gate shut panic, and torschlusspanik panic is um, is is essentially feeling that all life's opportunities are closing on you now, so that you won't be able to do this again. You know, you might not get a new job, you won't be able to change careers. So it's just that sense yeah. that that doors are closing in your face. So it's it's a bit grim, but the Germans do. Oh, they do yearning so well. They have this wonderful word, Fernweh, which is um, far longing. So instead of homesickness, it's longing to be far away, which I think a lot of us probably feel right oh, now. Oh, very good. So it's the opposite. But, you want to be further away from home as possible. Yeah, I'd like that. Yeah, or just somewhere else. Somewhere else, um, yeah. <laughs> which is good. Um, and then they also, surprisingly, given the Germans' reputation for efficiency, etc., they have something called Eilkrankheit, which is hurry sickness. And that's something, again, I definitely recognise and, and I think um, your listeners might too. And Eilkrankheit is essentially that sort of that horrible feeling that you're never going to be able to get on top of things, that you're chasing your tail constantly and you're probably always late. Uh, oh, I really struggled with some of the Irish pronunciations in there as well. But um, do you want you to know, try they... one or two on me and see what happens? Oh, OK. I just I probably should put it on the spot this. here. But go on. OK, there was some there was something which is Yaracht. Does that make sense? Spell it for me. Okay, so it's I. I'm going to see if I can remember this. I, A R M, um, H A I R, and then E A C H T E Waracht. But it's yeah, I think it's. Oh, a, you did well there. Lost... I, th- I would have gone with the Waracht. Oh, would you? Yeah, oh, that's okay. lovely. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be an expert oh. on Irish, but that's really lovely. Oh, brilliant! Well, it is. Um, it's actually. I think it's. It's old. It's probably now lost. But it was um, recorded in uh, in a book about the sort of vanishing vocabulary of Ireland, and it means the loneliness that you feel at dawn um, oh, when you nice. just sort of feel like you're the only one that's sort of there and experiencing this. You know, those sort of hours when you're lying awake and everything seems so much bigger than it actually is. Um, so that's a lovely one for that. Also in old English, it was called Uchtkara, which is. Um, a bit like sort of uh, dawn sorrow, um, which again is is beautiful. It's beautiful. Susie Dent from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, the dangers of using large appliances at night to get cheaper rates on your energy bills. Households around the country are coming under increasing pressure to reduce their home energy bills and people have been encouraged to make use of off-peak rates. But my next guest says it is not safe to turn on large appliances at night. Ken O'Connell is an electrician in Cork and he joins me on the line now. Good morning, Ken. Morning, Claire. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks very much for joining us on this. And you, you know the cost of living tips are being shared widely at the moment. And we are being told to use large appliances like the dryer and the dishwasher at off-peak hours when the rates are lower. But you say yeah. don't do it. No, Claire. absolutely not. It's been the advice for years not to run your washing machine, your tumble dryer, your dishwasher, machines like that by night when you're in bed or, or even when you're out of the home. They're just very susceptible to fire, Claire. The fire brigade are constantly advising it. And just recently, on a lot of TV and radio shows, 
I've heard I've heard it being mentioned by money saving experts to you know get your off peak electricity rates from your supplier and to run these machines by night. And I just felt I had to make a video about it mm-hmm. and just advise people not to do it there. And you did, and we saw your video on TikTok. Yeah. So you have obviously seen the other side of this when it does go wrong. I have, Claire. This is my 18th year in business now, and I'd say I've at least wired, rewired 10 or 12 houses following fires from dishwashers, washing machines, cumbers, things like that. And I've been involved in plenty of lucky escapes where... You know, the machine has gone on fire, but the, the, the customers have got to, the, got to it quick enough, you know. Yeah, but the problem is that when the smoke starts, that that can cause further problems, can put people into a deeper sleep. Is that right? Well, absolutely. Smoke will only put you into deeper sleep. It won't wake you up. So if you if you are going to run these machines by night, which I advise against, but if you are, make sure you have good working smoke alarms in your house and that they're tested regularly because these machines just, they, they, are, they are susceptible to fire. Well, and you, I'm not trying to fight. I'm not trying to fight anybody, Claire. Yeah, I, I know. And listen, Dublin Fire Brigade, they've warned about this in a number of Twitter posts yeah. as well, so you're not alone here. But will you explain yeah. to me why these appliances, like the dryer and the dishwasher and so on, why are they more susceptible to fires? Anything with a heating element, Claire, is susceptible to fire because it builds up a lot of heat in it. It takes a higher load than your standard appliances. Um, t- take the you mentioned tumble dryer there the lint the build up of lint and fluff in tumble dryers if they're not cleaned out regularly they can ignite there's loads of different reasons care dishwashers moisture can get into the wiring um, people not taking regular care of them uh, cleaning filters and things like that one bit of advice I would always give to people is when they buy an appliance is to register it because if there's any issues with that appliance down the line the manufacturers would be in contact with you if there's any recalls or anything like that. And that happens quite often, actually, you know. Mm-hmm. I saw in the comments on your TikTok video, someone was uh, asking yep. you a question about the slow cooker. And I was interested yep. in your reply on that one because I was I made a stew overnight in my slow cooker. You you, you just wouldn't <laughs> do that. I wouldn't. I just wouldn't trust any of them. Anything with a heating element, Clara, I'd really advise against it, you know. So you go around at night now switching absolutely everything off, do you? <laughs> no, not, not really. But even just talking, you know, people are talking about saving money and things. There's a lot easier ways to save money. Just go around and turn off the lights. I go into houses and there's lights on everywhere and there's speakers plugged in and televisions plugged in and nobody's in the room. If you want to save money, just turn things off. Ken O'Connell from today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.